Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. We train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building and we help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story that unites people and moves them to act together. And if you want to act together and create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Uh, when you need support with a legal issue, it can feel daunting. And that's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping and guiding clients with their legal needs. And they're here to help you when you need it the most from workplace to medical injuries class actions occupational diseases and wills and estates planning they're australia's leading plan of law firm and they have the local knowledge and the national network with experience that you can count on to find out more simply visit morris blackburn at morrisblackburn.com.au today's episode is also brought to you by swift fox every moment on a campaign matters you need the tools that you can trust lists that are up to date phone banks that can change minds emails that drive donations events that will energize the community both online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly swiftfox crm is made for campaigners by campaigners and to find out more simply go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that podcast that drops every single Friday morning and we dive into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and the budget is coming up next Tuesday night. The federal budget is going to be handed down by Labor's federal treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and we have Emma Dawson from Per Capita on the show this week and next week to preview and then review the budget. So looking forward to having a chat to Emma today about what we expect to see in uh, the first full uh, financial year budget from the uh, Albanese Labor government. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And when you're done listening to the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts uh, and leave us a review. A positive one would be great. Uh, and for all the updates, don't forget to follow Dunn Street on YouTube Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Monday lunchtime. Oh, wow, how efficient and how organized we are this time. Uh, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the, uh, the federal budget is due to be handed down uh, next week. And so what we're doing is we're doing a back-to-back -back podcast where we're going to preview the budget and what we think is going to happen. And then we're going to review the budget and find out whether we were right or not. And to help me do that, uh, you know her from uh, our podcast when we broke down the federal campaign and also the Victorian state campaign. She's the executive director for uh, Per Capita, a leading progressive public policy think tank. Emma Dawson, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Great to be here. So we've got this budget and uh, I really have got you on the show to help me work out what happens because as you know, I have, this is not my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but I know certainly our listeners, our loyal, dedicated listeners are socially democratic. 
love their policy and uh, want to know uh, the ins and outs of what goes into uh, the budget. So I thought I'd get you on this week to start to unpack what we think is going to happen and what are going to be the incredibly important aspects of the budget. And then afterwards, uh, we're going to sit down on uh, following Tuesday night and then start to unpack it all. Um, off the off the cap, like right off the top, um, what do we want to see from this budget? Like what are our expectations going into this uh, first kind of full budget, right? Because we had that weird one right. late last year, but this is it, the first traditional kind of budget from this new Albany to yeah. Yeah, this is the first proper budget, the first FY23-24, what will we be doing in the, the coming financial year? Um, and it's it's Jim Chalmers' first full budget as a Labor Treasurer. And I think when you ask the question, what do we expect from it, it depends very much who you ask. Right? Um, if you're asking Labor's true believers, I think they're all hoping nervously for something that sort of threads the needle um, between the the obvious desire and I think a sensible desire by Albanese and Chalmers and other leaders of the government to be re-establishing their credentials or establishing their credentials as the preferred economic managers for the country. Um, and I think they have been doing a good job at that. On the other side, you've got a lot of traditional Labor supporters, uh, younger voters, particularly very progressive millennial voters saying, hang on, this is the first time we've had a Labor government since I've been an adult for a lot of them, and they want to see a lot more action on social justice. It's a challenge for Jim Chalmers um, threading that needle, Um, but we've got some really interesting economic circumstances happening around the budget too. So uh, we actually got uh, a surplus for March this year, so a rolling uh, surplus. There is a strong chance that Jim Chalmers could be delivering the first surplus or close to surplus a balanced budget in 15 years on Tuesday night, the 9th of May, uh, because of perversely, a lot of the commodity price shocks and supply chains and uh, things that have caused such inflation uh, for households have actually been very good for government coffers. We're a commodity exporting nation. So we are making windfall gains um, off a lot of that uh, export activity. And so the return to the government's coffers uh, is stronger than was expected, even back in October when Jim gave us his sort of mini budget back then. Um, The challenge then, of course, is on the right of politics and the conservative press, they're saying bank every single dollar and make sure you deliver that surplus because we've got a trillion dollars worth of debt and we've got structural deficits in the budget. So we might record a surplus this year, but we're projecting structural deficits. And what we mean by that is the gap between government revenue and government expenditure of around $50 billion a year over the next decade or so because of cost pressures in the economy, which I'll talk about later. And then on the left, you've got a very strong chorus of people saying, no, spend that money now. We have got a crisis in cost of living. What they really mean there is we've got a poverty crisis in this country. We've got a really persistent problem with people at the bottom of the income scale, those reliant on payments now uh, at, you know, only around uh, 57% or something of the minimum wage of those working age income payments, income support payments. They're below any poverty line you want to think of. We've also got huge problems funding necessary supports through the NDIS. We've got a lot of investment to make in aged care. Uh, we were starting to see aged care homes say they can't continue um, because of the new requirements to have 24-7 nursing, etc from the 1st of July. Uh, We've got a lot of expenditure pressures on the social and physical infrastructure front. Uh, And, of course, people have seen big expenditure on defence and think, well, if we can do that and we can proceed with these very expensive tax cuts, we should be putting money into traditional 
uh, Labor government issues, which is supporting the most vulnerable. So it is a challenging budget. Um, in a way, Jim is very lucky in that he's coming into his first budget at a time when commodity prices are high and so he's seeing, um, you know, some unexpected windfall gains there. Um, on the other hand, he's inherited a real mess in terms of the structural deficit going forward uh, over the forward estimates in the coming decade and some real pressures because of the lack of investment really over the last decade in those social security and social infrastructure uh, aspects of, of what we do. So it's uh, it's probably the budget that we're seeing the greatest expectations across the community, um, a real expectation of a government that will do something, um, and a lot of those expectations are coming from within the tent. So it's a bit of a, I'm, I, I don't envy being uh, Jim Chalmers at the moment. Can I ask a question? What, the structural deficit point you made before, how did we get yeah. here? Because it's been stories <laughs> have been running the show now for quite some time and they're supposed to be, according to yeah. the Conservative commentary, the best people to manage the economy, but yet we've got structural deficit. Why is that? Absolutely. Because they're not, uh, because they've run the they've run the economy badly uh, for a long, long time. Even I mean, a lot of people will say Peter Costello didn't make these mistakes. Peter Costello was kicked in the ass by a rainbow, right? He had the highest commodity boom in Australian history, and he squandered it. And what we saw with the previous, uh, you know, Abbott Turnbull Morrison government was economic management that was applauded by uh, what the pages of the Financial Review and the Australian like to call the leaders of the economy. What they mean there is business owners, <laughs> shareholders, people who make passive income off investments, capital, basically. Mm. Uh, so we have had actually uh, over the last 10 years an even more naked approach to running our economic systems, um, our macroeconomic policy, our fiscal policy in particular, the government's in charge of fiscal policy, in the interests of the wealthy. Uh, so they have cut taxes across the board, uh, introduced tax concessions uh, or, or strengthened tax concessions with the exception of some movements on super under Scott Morrison as treasurer um, for higher income earners. They have encouraged more and more property investment and speculation. They have reduced uh, macro prudential regulations that uh, limit uh, lending going to investors at the same time as we had record low interest rates. We had fiscal policy and, mac and, and uh, monetary policy pulling in opposite directions for much of the last decade. And so they have created a mess. At the same time, they failed to invest adequately in the NDIS, for example, so a lot of lip service to the NDIS being bipartisan and we care about disabled people. Um, but they did not invest in the agency uh, that, that runs the NDIS. They allowed it to become um, virtually a cowboy's market of outsourced providers without sufficient regulatory oversight. They failed to invest in aged care. They failed to adequately regulate the largely privatised aged care market. Uh, and it really was an ideological belief that if we just push all the money to the top, it, the market will take care of it. It's an extreme free market position that we've had for the last decade. I'm a fan of markets, <laughs> but they have to be regulated and they have to work in the interests of people. And so we've now got, and when the, the government stands up and says, we'd like to do everything, we can't do everything, this is a big ship to turn around, it's actually true. There is a huge structural mess at the heart of our tax and transfer system that is going to take a long time to fix. Um, we need to spend a long time thinking about the systems of social care that we haven't invested in. So we've turned aged care, early childhood education and care, uh, disability care into profit-making vehicles without uh, 
adequately regulating those and ensuring that we've got the regulations right and there's enough government funding going into them. So anyone, and I think this is what um, Albanese and Chalmers have done well, is they haven't sort of come in and, and splashed the cash from day one as a lot on the left would like them to do. If we answered all of the Greens' demands, the structural deficit would blow out by about another 100%, I think. Mm. Um, so they've tried to be prudent and say we understand the challenges. We are in a high inflation environment. We don't want to add to inflation. Um, but at the same time, in my view, there, there's been a, a lot of rhetorical caution. We'll see what comes out in the budget next week, but there does have to be while a recognition that a lot of these structural issues will take a long term to address, long time to address, um, some immediate action to to relieve some of the most the pointy end of, of what people are suffering from from the collapse of these social care systems and the ex, you know extraordinary loss of value of income support over particularly the last decade, but really the last thirty years. Do you think? I mean, this this inheriting this mess from the previous government, mm. the politics of that. And communicating that to the electorate to let them know just how effed up the economy is right yeah. now. Do you think the government's done a good job of actually making that argument? I think sometimes I think we can be a little bit too polite, and you know, <laughs> communication can be. Well, I'm the treasurer now, so I need to sound treasury-ish, you know. Whereas I think the language would <laughs> be these guys really fucked this up, and we are they all really- going to have to wear this. And just yeah. hammer that for the next two years, you know, because then yeah. it will make it yeah. more sense. So whatever comes out on Tuesday, people would go, I get it. It's been 12 mm. years of just shit mm. management mm. and it's right. not going to be easy. Well, to I, think, I think, you know, from a from your point of view, why aren't we campaigning harder on that, right? Why aren't we making that message stronger? I think Albanese's rightly recognised that people are sick of the conflict and they're sick of the arguments and they're sick of the blame game. So they've avoided hammering it too much but at the same time have persistently put that message forward we've inherited a lot of debt we haven't had a lot to show for it um, and there are these structural problems I think the electorate gets it more than perhaps the political class expects them to and I think the Aston by election result was a great example of that where Dutton thought he would cruise to a win maybe a slightly difficult win but he thought he'd win because it's a classic mortgage belt seat where people really feel the pain of interest rate rises and the cost of living increases through inflation, but they got hammered. And and it's partly because the electorate does know, right? Morrison's government in particular was so bad um, and the chorus of complaints from the traditional right-wing media were so strong that I think the electorate gets it, right? I think most people in the electorate, unless they're determined not to get that message for ideological reasons, um, understand that not everything can be done at once. And they understand, and I think they're starting to understand more what, what what the difference is between a deficit and a surplus and a structural deficit going forward. So we might afford this thing this year, but the costs, for example, in aged care are only going to grow as more and more large, you know, big generation of boomers retire and move into needing that care. Uh, NDIS is, is expanding um, and they've now capped growth at 8% per year, but they still expect it to grow by 8% a year minimum and that's significant. Um, and so I think people in the community also can see through the pandemic they were perhaps brought face-to-face for the first time with things like the hospital system, 
um, the income support system, all of those social care programs that people, you know, working people on a day-to-day basis don't deal with and went, hang on, this is a mess, you know. I can't, I'm waiting for 12 hours in an ER. There are no nurses on staff. I can't get in to see my GP. Um, I can't access, if I'm on, on the phone to Centrelink for this job keeper or job seeker bonus that I needed for this small period of time in 2020, 2021, I'm on hold for months. They've realised what a mess these systems are. And that's the average person out there that doesn't usually engage with the, the, those, you know, infrastructure, the social infrastructure that supports our economy and our society. So I do think people out there get it, but I, I also think the government has done a pretty good job of making clear where the fault lies without being seen to just be sh- blame shifting, blame shifting, you know. Um, but it's going to be a test on Tuesday night to see what they come up with and whether they manage those constituencies reasonably well. What are the th- if you're the Treasurer, what are the three areas of priorities that you would centre on in terms of this budget? <sighs> it's a really hard question, right? Um, social care systems have to be first. So, you know, this it, it is untenable for the government not to do something on welfare. Um, my guess is that, and, and there's been wide acceptance now that they will um, reverse or at least partially change the laws, the rules around single mothers accessing parenting payment. Um, John Howard changed that from 16, when your youngest child turns 16 to 8 in 2006, but he grandfathered it for anyone already on the scheme and then Gillard ended the grandfathering. It's seen, it's a fault by both sides. I think they will uh, reverse that. They've had strong recommendations to do it. I think hopefully there'll be some targeting targeted cost of living relief in terms of energy bill support and some Commonwealth rent assistance, but they must, they must raise the base rate of working age income support payments, job seeker and youth allowance. Um, we've had at least now 15 or 16 Labor backbenchers make that call as well. Uh, it is a sensitive issue for the government, um, but it's got to be done. So that would be my first area is to say there are people that have been so badly neglected for so long and we're going to give them some help. At the same time, we're looking at longer-term structural changes to employment services, to all of these issues around the full employment agenda that means we don't get back into this space. Uh, I think secondly, and I hope we will see some action on um, resource rent taxes. Uh, We've got big multinational energy companies making out like bandits at the moment in the international energy market. Uh, Those are our finite resources. They belong to the Australian people. Once they're dug up and shipped off, there's no more of them. They're fossil fuels, fossil for a reason. Uh, So I hope we'll see some movement there uh, towards a better tax regime on that front. Um, And I hope we'll see some Changes around really what we're seeing, the, the, the boring stuff that nobody wants to, to take any notice of. You know, Catherine King's talking about uh, really addressing what we're spending on infrastructure, shutting down a lot of those vote-winning port barrelling projects and putting a, a better, uh, more evidence-based um, approach into infrastructure funding. But what's critical in this budget, and a lot of the groundwork's been done with the safeguard mechanism, etc., is to recreate some uncertainty for investors in our market to move to the new economy. Um, so this is a this is a big budget. You know, you asked me for three things to focus on. Really what I'm talking about there is the, the transfer side, the revenue side, and then the longer-term investment market for the, for the country. Um, but not everything's going to be in this budget, Stephen. We know that. You know, the RBA review's just been handed down. 
Um, there's there's a huge inquiry underway into how we um, help and support people into the jobs market. Um, the employment white paper is still going through its process of what that structure might look like. And I do believe that, you know, there's, there's an appetite within government and now within the community for a broader conversation about tax reform to go into a second term government. So um, it's it's an environment where, like you said, they've made a fucking mess of it. Um, at the moment, what we're seeing is patching and big reforms, not for patching, in the famous words of Beveridge. It should be a wholesale reform, but that takes time. It takes a, a conversation with the community, and this is just the beginning of that. In recent uh, news, the, the, the st- comments we have heard out of Treasurer Jim Chalmers, he's warned the public that uh, the the economic growth will be incredibly weak over the next five years. Mm. Um, reflections on that is that? Do you think that's what do it's you think a, about that? Yeah. Oh, it's a global problem. It's a global challenge, and it's a challenge for centre left governments and parties around the world. Is after really decades now of uh, an economic system that has widened inequality uh, has now got to the point where it is um, dysfunctional. We've got a dysfunctional model of market capitalism. So growth has been stifled by increased inequity and by uh, a lack of, of regulation of the market to work for people. You've got now, since the GFC, um, financial institutions and monetary policy not working as it used to, uh, very few tools left in the toolbox for monetary policy, fiscal policy hasn't been working well, and we're seeing a rise in populism on both the right and left because people are so frustrated. So the challenge for centre-left social democratic parties is how do we make the change we need to make um, without alienating our own voters and how do we um, really build a narrative and and bring the community along with the changes that need to be made. It's a really tough thing. The global outlook for growth is low Um, and that's because we haven't invested in the things that drive growth. We haven't seen wage growth, really real wage growth, in any advanced economy for the better part of 15 years now. Um, House prices, though, have continued to skyrocket uh, and people don't feel that they can... They've been the, the promise of social mobility that if you work hard you'll get ahead has been broken across the world. Now, that high inflation environment is a real challenge. Uh, it means lower growth. Um, and the, the the circumstances, you know, on the one hand, how do we grow the economy? Well, we build productivity in by workers producing more for less input. Um, the challenge with that is in the services sector where so many of us work now, productivity looks quite different than it did in the old manufacturing sector. So it used to be, well, how long does it take me to make this widget and and if you you can reduce that time and increase the number of widgets you've got productivity growth in services it's a lot more complex than that and I don't believe any of our uh, current treasury leaders or um, economic policymakers fully understand yet how to adequately measure productivity in services Uh, an example of this is the productivity commission recently came out and said look, the early childhood education and care sector hasn't shown any productivity growth since the year 2000 within its own sector. But it it failed to acknowledge that it's allowed a lot of women to enter the workforce in that time. So the productivity it's creating isn't necessarily confined to its own sector. So there are challenges around that that mean we may be growing the economy but not in ways that we can traditionally measure. So we need to look at how we measure it differently. At the same time, 
We really have, and it partly because of the cultural war over climate change more than anything else, we have destroyed business confidence to invest in the next round of technological change. So we're not, we, labour productivity's been fine, right, across the economy. It's multi-factor productivity, which is what we talk about businesses investing in new technologies, bringing on board new ways of doing things, creating new sectors and new businesses that has stagnated really for the better part of two decades. And that's largely been because all of the technological developments we need to make are in new energy industries and new industries that rely on moving to a non-carbon based economy and the culture war over that because of the money that's tied up in fossil fuels has held us back from developing those new technologies. Australia is one of the worst countries in this regard. We have such a strong commodity export market that comes into, you know, into its own at times like this, but it's actually really held us back from diversifying our industrial base and our economic base and those things take time. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, very positive reception from the business community here to finally an end of those climate wars, get the safeguard mechanism through. It might not be perfect. The Greens have problems, but we've got something now that we can build on and start to see some investment. So growth is all linked to that lack of adequate fiscal management um, because we have failed or too many of our leaders have either either completely ideologically don't care and they just want to look after the big end of town or they really have drunk the Kool-Aid and think it's going to try trickle down when all the evidence is that it doesn't unless the, unless governments actively manage markets and, sh and ensure that what we're investing in is going to lift all of us and not just those at the top. We, uh, I did interview uh, last week, but we'll go up in two weeks' time after we've done the budget one. So it's, we're talking about something that, that no one knows exists just yet. But anyway, we'll talk. It's someone, uh, Claire Ainsley, who's uh, a, a Brit and a social democrat, who was out here just recently uh, doing a bit of research. Yeah. Why Labor's been reasonably successful electorally, uh, both at a mm. state and now federal level, how they can take that back mm. to the US and also the UK. And we had a bit of a long conversation about what we think the social democratic model is that is successful. And I sort of, from a, you know, more from a campaign perspective, less than an economics perspective, but you're talking about growth and thinking yeah. about what we've done at a state level, um, not just here in Victoria, but across a lot of our states has been a lot of investment in infrastructure and out of that creates jobs. And from that, it all just flows. Um, is there an argument that uh, in order to help our economic growth that we, you know, which, to your point there, you're talking about investing in sort of, you know, new industries and renewables and, and the like, but even with a growing population, investing in support services like trains and freeways and, you know, schools and hospitals creates jobs, but also helps people, you know, live decent lives. Um, is that a way to get, get out of this? And also then thinking about the population growth, should we be taking in more citizens because that means more people paying tax and stamp duty and all that kind of stuff and that, you know, puts more money into the, into the, into the, the bank account for the government. What, what are your thoughts on that as a way of addressing some of the challenges that you've articulated? Yeah, it's a virtuous circle. If immigration, and I, I, I think that I, I, you know, kudos to Claire O'Neill here for the uh, review of the immigration system that she released last week. There were no punches pulled there. We've got it completely backwards. Um, we have we have restricted the ability of 
uh, highly qualified, highly paid, uh, skilled migrants to come into the country and build a good life. And we've encouraged a lot of low paid temporary migrants to come and, and work in our services industry. And it's the absolute wrong way to grow an economy. Um, immigration is good because it's a virtuous circle. We bring in people that contribute to our economy, they pay taxes, they consume goods, they grow the economy. But it has to be combined, as you say, with infrastructure investment. So one of the challenges in Melbourne, for example, um, is that we have one CBD and we have an enormous um, footprint of, of what is our city for three and a half million people. Where the growth corridors are, are out in those greenfield sites where there are no roads, there are no hospitals, there are no schools. Um, people are queuing for an hour and a half to get onto the, the Western Freeway uh, living out past Craigieburn because there's only one access road, you know. So we're building homes in the wrong spot without putting in the, the infrastructure that's needed. And that's an expense, but it's an expense that returns. It's an investment, right? The critical thing for me, Stephen, is that we need to shift that thinking around physical infrastructure towards social infrastructure. So when we talk about investing in the NDI or spending money on the NDIS or spending money on aged care or spending money on early childhood care, we need to think of that as an investment. And the government's got there really well on early childhood education and care, right? They see, they know not only is it an investment in kids that returns $2 over the lifetime for every dollar invested in kids when they're that young in their education. But we're also investing in women's workforce participation and we're investing in an ecosystem of care and education that lifts our educational achievements across the board. We need to see, we need to recognise the benefit of that in all social infrastructure spending. Uh, so people say, oh, you can't say the same about aged care because they're not productive citizens that you're investing in. Well, it's the right thing to do, right? But it also will have significant knock-on effects. It, again, it's women that tend to take time out of the workforce to care for older relatives when they're unwell. Um, we can extend the meaningful and useful lives of older people by investing in better aged care. We also stop the fear that a lot of older people when they retire don't spend their super, right? What This is a big puzzle for treasury boffins. Why are people only drawing down 5% a year even when they've got 600000 in their super? Because they, they're afraid of needing it for the massive bond when they go into aged care when they're 90. So if we, if we invest in these services, then there's less fear in the you know, aged care, less fear in the community. I'm going to spend that money in my 60s and 70s in my local community and that adds to economic growth. So we have to start seeing social infrastructure just as as valid a point for investing as we do for hard infrastructure that returns over. Everyone knows you build a bridge, it improves transport times, that adds to economic growth, right? We need to think the same way about social infrastructure as well. And that's going to be a bigger shift and it's going to take quite a bit of work to understand how we measure the outputs there so that we can justify the inputs. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. He opened up a Pandora's box there by talking about the Department of Treasury. And I want to ask you a question about this only because, look, as I said, I'm not an economist. I'm not a pop policy person by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just a middle-class bloke with his own podcast and therefore he can ask questions of anyone he likes. Um, but I've just been wondering for a while, like with uh, to the point about inflation mm. 
And that's very, very real. And it's felt every day by the citizens of Australia. And, you know, we've had problems with this in the past, uh, but it hasn't been a problem for a while. And 20 years later, I feel like the, the Treasury have pulled out their old playbook, you know, and blown the yeah. dust off it yeah. and said, right, the way we deal with this is we need to jack up uh, yep. interest rates on, on homes. And I feel like going like, okay, yeah, teams won World Cups in the 1960s with long ball, but I just don't know if we're doing that anymore. And I'm just wondering, like, have you not come up with any other ideas? Like yeah. there's thousands of you. Yeah, I know. I don't, like 30 other different variations of football have now developed since then and gone out of phase, but you are still doing, come up with your, oh, we'll just jack up interest rates. That's and right. then I'll, yeah, and I'll take home a salary of, you know, 500,000 a year and go job done. That's right. Yeah. No, there yeah. is a huge problem. I, in my, look, I'm going to say this because I'm, I'm, I'm a self-taught economist and I'm not, um, you know, I don't have formal qualifications in that field. Um, but I understand the lingo and I've, I've taught myself a lot about it. And yes, our, our institutions are dominated by neoclassical or neoliberal neoclassical economists who are stuck in a model that they introduced in the early 90s that they thought, wow, we did really well with that. Look how we crunched inflation. Um, now, there, there are huge differences, right? Um, the inflation in the 70s was very much a wage price spiral and people were sort of stuck on that idea. And then we're looking at the early 90s when we created, um, in, when we invented or New Zealand invented inflation targeting and we came up with this 2 to 3% target and gave the Reserve Bank focus on that over everything else. Um, there's some evidence to show, and I, this is not a particularly left-wing position, John Hewson uh, shares this view, <laughs> amongst others, that a huge contributing factor to the crushing of inflation in the 90s was not monetary policy, it was the rise of cheap consumer goods from China, right? So it brought down the cost of things that people buy every day, TVs, equipment, technology exploded, clothing became much cheaper, consumer goods became cheaper. Um, and so there was a big contribution of that to crushing inflation in the early 90s. But even, even if, you know, there were um, misunderstandings then of just how effective their inflation targeting was, it's not fit for purpose now. They, they are still, because the Reserve Bank only has those tools um, and fiscal policymakers in Treasury are too shy of intervening in the economy. They still believe that if we get these macro settings right, it will take care of itself. And some of the Reserve Bank review indicates that. You know, it's suggesting removing um, the, the power for the Treasurer to override the RBA, which, as Keating pointed out last week, is fundamentally anti-democratic. It's never been used. It's actually pretty important that it's there. Um, because there's this view that if we just get these settings right, the market will take care of itself. We've seen that that doesn't happen. And what we have today is not a wage price spiral, it's a profits price spiral. And we know that because big companies, not just big energy companies, but banks, supermarkets, all of our highly concentrated um, big companies in Australia where we have a real lack of competition are making good profits and they're putting up their prices beyond what they need to uh, in order to protect their bottom line. And that's really what's causing inflation. Now, you can't really blame the RBA. They don't have a lot of tools, right? They've, they've basically got interest rate setting. What you can say is Treasury has dropped the ball here over at least 15 years, if not longer, by refusing to countenance active fiscal policy to intervene in the market. And that's an ideological position. There is The evidence shows them they should be doing this. 
that they should be raising profit, uh, raising taxes on rents, uh, that they should that we should be building more social and and basic um, physical infrastructure in low-income suburbs, that we should be investing in programs, but there is this mindset that says, well, the first thing you've got to do is get the budget back in balance, right? Now, we've had a huge commodities windfall and we're expecting to see, if not a surplus budget on the 9th, that might be a bit too good to be true, then very close to a balanced budget. If now's not the time to invest, coming out of a crisis, profit-driven uh, inflation, hugely uh, congested or starting to free up international supply change, war in Ukraine that threatens to expand beyond Ukraine um, and and real obvious uh, collapses in social services, in social systems of care, in housing affordability, if now's not the time to shift that thinking and recognise that we haven't managed the economy in the interest of the vast majority of Australians, I don't know when the time's going to be. But some, you know, there, there will be people in Treasury um, and people in our institutions, in the Productivity Commission and others, that are so wedded to their ide- ideology and that are so wedded to their way of thinking about the economy that they can't change their minds. And there are others that don't want to change their minds because actually they, they benefit from a very lopsided economy. Sticking with the conversation about uh the cost of living and, and inflation. What what do we think we'll see from the government in this budget to address some of that stuff? If if we, if Treasury is not going to be able to do it for us, what can what can Jim and Labor do do for the people of Victoria? Sorry, Australia. I know this has been <laughs> this has been really at the heart of a lot of the 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 very strained debates inside caucus and inside cabinet. Um, a lot of people wanting to do a lot of things and the constant refrain, "We can't do everything." Um, I'm, I'm really pleased that the work that's gone on now for months and years and people like Sam Mostyn and um, Anne Summers and Therese Edwards and others will almost certainly see um, a reversal of that, that decision on single mothers. We will see some targeted household relief, I think, in the form of um, energy bill uh, um, rebates. Um, we will see, uh, I hope, some movement on Commonwealth rent assistance. I don't love it as a policy. I think actually social housing is much more important. It's great to see $2 billion come out of National Cabinet and, and a commitment to build more housing last week. But in the short term, CRA increase is the best thing you can do. We're in a real rental crisis. And I hope, genuinely hope, there will be some lift, meaningful lift to those rates of income support payment. Those can be quite targeted things we can do in this budget that won't be inflationary. This idea that lifting JobSeeker will be inflationary is just not true. You know, anyone that's on JobSeeker on $50 a day, if you give them extra money, it's going towards paying for medicines or, or, or electricity bills or, you know, something that they've long needed and have put off, going to the dentist. They're not going out and spending that and, and causing inflation um, in the economy. They're so far behind the eight ball. We do have to be careful, though, not to spike inflation um, too much. Uh, and I think that what this budget will do is some very tightly targeted support for the cost of living but build, hopefully, a framework for a bigger conversation over the next two to three years about our entire tax and transfer system and that structural deficit. Because if we don't start raising more revenue, um, we will not be able to fund the things that all Australians expect to be there to give us a decent quality of life. It's um, interesting you talk about that, like the NDIS and the job seeker. I mean, job seeker for us, uh, an independent or an individual person, this is like $693 a fortnight and even build short and said the other day at the um, press club that oh, I couldn't live on that yeah, uh, no in, one in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and this activist uh, element within the caucus uh, is interesting, right, just to sort of yeah. quietly go about um, yeah. putting a bit of pressure on 
on the cabinet to lift it or in a meaningful way. Mm. Um, I read a quote, and I just want to quote this is from David Crow from the Sydney Morning Herald talking about uh, wanting to lift uh, the, mm. the job seeker. He said, mm. and I quote, it will be easy for critics to attack Labor from the left for spending money on defence rather than income support. That $34 billion for income support can't be found, yet $368 billion can be committed to fund nuclear-powered submarines. But the argument is simplistic and should be challenged whenever it is aired. The mm. income support is an increase for four years, whereas AUKUS will cost the total program over 30. But if you divide it by 30 or divide it by four, the income support is going to be $8.5 billion per annum. The subs are going to be $12 billion yep. per annum. It's still more expensive yep. to do the subs. Yep. Yep. Your thoughts on that? This is the challenge, right, for um, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer. Now, I'm defense, governments print defence spending. They print the money for defence spending. Defence is never asked to find offsets and the government is never expected to find offsets elsewhere in the budget for defence spending. It's just governments print money for defence. But the fact is, yes, the argument is pretty strong to say, well, they're, they're costing significantly more. Um, I think the and, and there's also obviously an argument about the cost of the Stage 3 tax cuts. Now, bear in mind they don't kick in until 20, uh, 2024, 1st of July 2024. So nothing in this year's budget would, would change anything, wouldn't bring us any more revenue this year to cancel those. That's a, that's a better argument than the subs to me. Like the subs are... People don't understand whether or not we need the subs really. There's a There's a... An emotional position. If you're a pacifist or you're a hawk, you know, a dove or a hawk, then you're going to be one way or the other. But it's incredibly complex. And we are, as an island nation, that's very reliant on not only sea trading routes, but those undersea cables that provide all of our communication, particularly vulnerable uh, to modern forms of warfare. So the subs to me are not a good comparison. The tax cuts are a better comparison. They don't kick in for another 12 months. But we don't get anything for the tax cuts. The government, the country doesn't get anything. A few very wealthy people get something and they get more money in their pocket that they're going to put into their super and pay even less tax on, right? So we don't get anything for that. But it's not a fair comparison this time around because that revenue does, issue doesn't kick in for another 15 months or so. The fact is this argument of what it costs and what it doesn't cost is largely irrelevant to the job seeker debate. Um, yes, it's it's a cost, and yes, it's an ongoing cost. And so people think of social spending as an ongoing cost rather than a you know capital cost, operational versus capital. Um, you, once you bake it in, it's baked into the budget. The fact is. Every expert has said it's a barrier to people participating in the workforce. It's causing real poverty and real harm. And hundreds of thousands of the people caught up in this are kids, right? They're young, you know, they're young children growing up that will never have a chance in life. And that is the worst thing we can do if we want long-term growth and sustainability and a fair society. So... David Crowe's, you know, he's painting the picture. Oh, you've got Pete, and, and Peter Harcher said this on the weekend as well. You've got people on the right saying you're going too far, people on the left saying you're not going far enough. Then generally speaking, uh, you're probably somewhere right in the middle. But that on this issue, I think, really not only misunderstands the fiscal um, uh, rationale for investing, which every economist has said invest in job seeker, but it also misreads the electorate because the vast majority of younger voters, of capital city voters, of voters that are voting Labor or Green, see this as a fundamental issue of fairness and who we are as a, as a country. Building on that, cheaper childcare uh, and increases to parental leave was delivered mm. last year. Uh, has it had a desired effect? Do you think, have we seen that? Do we need to address this even further? I think you sort of touched on it a bit in your opening remarks. 
Yeah, it hasn't flowed through fully through the system yet. So Labor's changes really are only just kicking in. Um, we do have workforce issues there that are holding it back as we do across the whole social services sector. Um, there needs to be... This is this was always painted, and I think really a positive outcome, a lot of us fought really hard for this um, policy for years, as a first step. Albanese's been really open that what he wants to get to eventually is free universal childcare, um, which is a really fantastic aim to have with the system. Um, but there's also, I think, a keen awareness within the Cabinet, particularly Katie Gallagher, who's the Finance Minister and Minister for Women, that this is one of the best things we can do to enable women's workforce participation, um, to free up some of that unpaid domestic load of work that holds women back from, from achieving their best outcome in life but also making their best contribution to the country. Um, paid parental leave changes are going to be expensive. I know the government wants to do them, whether they'll... Uh, do them in this budget or look at them down the track, I think is a live question. But there's not only a desire to pay superannuation on existing paid parental leave schemes, but to expand further the time available uh, for men. And I know that Sam Mostyn's Women's Economic Security Task Force has been looking at just how much of that increased provision of PPL should be a use it or lose it for men. Researchers in the social... Um, economy space like me know uh, that if you don't have a use it or lose it portion for men then the culture is very shifted, hard to shift. Um, so I think Labor gets it on this, they really do, they see it as uh, it's not just a nice thing to do, it's not a women's issue, it's an economic issue, it's a family issue, it goes to the heart of our work-life balance and of our ability to grow the economy um, but in a way that benefits households. So, you know, one of my bugbears is uh, the increased hours of women's workforce participation over the last 20 years really have just gone to higher house prices. Um, and so our day-to-day -day lives have not particularly... The house might be slightly bigger and slightly nicer, um, but our in, in terms of the amount of work needed to do, the amount of time we have with our families um, and those incidental day-to-day -day costs, we haven't seen much of a lifestyle payoff at all. So getting that balance right is going to be really important too. But again, these are longer-term issues. <laughs> we uh, we saw, um, was it Porter Davis, the housing yep. developers uh, go under recently, uh, talking about this sort of housing crisis deepening. Uh, what needs to be done to address this and what would we see from the budget, do you think? I know that's a massive question there. but just... It's a massive question and unfortunately it looks like housing now is going to become the new policy area on which the Greens seek to make some product differentiation. Having having grown up a bit on climate change and said, okay, we can't keep using this as a political football, uh, let's make some compromises. And I think Adam Bant did an admirable job of getting that through his party room. Uh, it seems the price that he's had to pay is action on housing because we've now got Max Chandler-Mather saying, I'm not going to back anything Labor does until they put on, on a national rent freeze which is simply not constitutionally possible. Ben, ben Chifley tried it, uh, failed. Um, what we did see come out of National Cabinet last week was a commitment from the states and territories to work with the federal government to come up with better rental regulations across the country. That's really important. Um, per capita now has a centre for equitable housing um, within its walls and we're doing a lot of work on this front. We know that actually a rent freeze is the worst kind of rent control you could implement in this country. Uh, what we need is, is tenancy regulation reform combined with other forms of, of rent control that can work without, without scaring off landlords. Um, this kind of rhetorical left populist landlords are evil um, that, that Chandler Mather seems to be pursuing is not actually going to lead to any good policy outcomes. 
Our housing market is the worst in the world. It is by per capita and by household income one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive. Um, it is racing to new levels of uh, dysfunction. We, you know, not only have it in a situation now where our recent research found that 85% of non-homeowners, mainly young people, still want to buy a home, but only one in four of them think they ever will. And of those, around two-thirds think they'll need an inheritance to do so. Um, so it's a real problem, but it's also a problem for people that will rent for life and the rental regulations, each state has them differently. Um, we have, you know, a situation in which inflation is causing landlords either to jack up rents or to get out of the market. And there was some recent research done um, by um, PEXA and Longview um, here in Melbourne that found that one in two landlords are, are trying to get out of the market because it's so difficult and impossible to make a return. So we've made a real mess of the housing market. Again, it's going to be a big tanker to turn around. But it's a live issue, uh, particularly for young voters, and it's going to start. It's already showing up at the ballot box. It's a big part of the reason the Greens picked up three seats in Brisbane, where rents went up 20% last year. Um, but if they keep running on the rhetoric and not actually coming to the party on solutions, uh, then I, I fear their uh, their electoral advantage in that area uh, may be quite short lived because young people are not stupid and they know. Um, the complexity of this issue. And I think like with climate change, they want to see people cooperate to get things done. It is interesting that you said that just because uh, in the Republic of Ireland, the biggest issue there right now is housing uh, yeah. leading to their next national elections, which aren't for a while away, but Sinn Féin have done very, very well in exploiting that as the opposition. Um, and in some ways, I know you can't replicate Irish, you know, <laughs> po politics with Australian politics, yeah. but... Um, they are kind of seen as, I guess, the, 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 the I mean, there already are a Green Party in Ireland, but the, the Sinn Féin have kind of grabbed that voter base, younger voter base, right, uh, and really rammed home this issue about housing. Yeah. Um, and, I, I'm, and a lot of Green Parties in Europe are doing the same thing as well and having success mm -hmm. in that. So it's no surprise that the Greens here well, are not stumped. So we really yeah. need to get onto this because if we don't get onto this, this is electorally going to be a real problem for us going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know that, right? You're, from your perspective, it's a huge political issue. From my perspective, it's a bad failure of policy. It's not only the right thing for Labor to act on housing, it's electorally imperative that they do, but it's the biggest failure. I mean, Australian society was predicated on being fair and, you know, and a, a homeowner's paradise, right? And we've largely destroyed that in the space of a generation. Um, even Menzies and, and, you know, the, the Curtin-Shifley government, then the Menzies government, both built a lot of public housing um, and both built housing that was then for people to buy at reduced costs. So this idea that government built housing is only for the very bottom of society is quite a new, you know, Thatcherite idea. Um, we mm. need governments to invest in more stock. Uh, we're seeing good conversations there around how we can get industry funds, super industry funds to invest. There's a, um, a development in Melbourne um, that's being partly funded by Australian Super, one of the big industry funds. Um, and while they, you know, have to maximise returns for investors so they can't build purely social housing stock, they are saying, well, our members tend to be average income earners and key workers, so ambos, nurses, teachers, police, who can't live within an hour of their job anymore, so let's create some affordable middle-band housing for them. The whole of society needs to pull together on this. It is 
an absolute crisis. We're seeing people living with their kids in tents, in cars. The Anglicare rental affordability snapshot came out the other day. There's just nothing, not even a room in a share house available for someone on JobSeeker. If people don't have secure housing, they can't build a life. And so um, it has to, we need to take the politics out of this. Um, the, the idea that housing could become the next centre-left versus far-left political football fills me with dread and fear because we saw what happened with climate change. We got nowhere on that for 15 years because the enemy was the perfect, the perfect was the enemy of the good. Um, we should pass every possible piece of legislation we can that's going to help us tackle housing affordability, um, including the Housing Australia Future Fund, as, in, as inadequate as the Greens and many people may think it is. It is a step in the right direction and we need to bank what we can and then get more. I mean, Emma, we've already started to see that political fight happening here in Victoria. I mean, all of the stuff that the Andrews government's done over the last eight or nine years around housing, the Greens have constantly voted against it. And even at local government levels, I mean, they are the classic NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Like we've tried to put social housing into areas where all of their voters live and they've all cracked the shits because they don't want poor people living next door. That's right. Like, well, Chandler was exposed on this on social media last week or the week before, right, when he came out and said, look, we're not going to pass the Housing Australia Future Fund until you put $5 billion uh, of direct funding into social housing and freeze rents across the country. People instantly showed pictures of him opposing development in his electorate, you know, um, coming up with spurious reasons why developments weren't going to be enough and so therefore he had to oppose them. He's created a difficult problem for himself here because he's campaigning in a very wealthy electorate. It's got a high proportion of renters, but the people, but he's also made a lot of promises to people about inappropriate developments in his seat, which is a typical kind of Greens wedge that they're in, right? They've got a lot of older, very established, um, small L liberal voters who are very concerned about climate change and marriage equality and others, but they don't want to see their house price go down. Um, and they've got a, a new constituency of young renters who want to get into the market. So he's he's really caused himself a little bit of grief there. Um, and I think what it points to is that you can't grapple with these really fundamentally sticky, difficult policy issues through rhetoric and popular slogans. You have to be prepared to say, we have to look at everything that works. And one of the challenges, there's a, a great development here in Melbourne, there's a new group um, called the Yimbies, the Yes in My Backyard that's popping up all over the country, younger people who are renting in municipalities where they don't get a say because they're not ratepayers, right, they don't get a say in development issues, um, and the people that are having a say are the established residents. We need to hear more of those voices. We need to be much more open to higher density building, and a lot of those are in inner-city Greens wealthy seats that they have traditionally knocked back at council level. So, you know, there's... Oh, yeah. There's a real need here for them to stop playing politics with this issue and look at what works and what actually can be done. And um, I will invite them to get onto Per Capita's Centre for Equitable Housing website and the Housing Monitor to see just what people think of this, just how engaged people are on this issue, and they don't want games, they want action. So a lot of what uh, we hope to see coming out of the announcement last week from National Cabinet because a lot of housing regulation is with the states. So that ability to work through National Cabinet towards some uh, national reforms by the end of this year uh, I think is a really good opportunity and hopefully um, we at Per Capita and CEH will have some input into some of those processes through our publications. Uh, my second last question. 
which is a cheeky question. And I, as I listening to you and the better angels of me, I think I need to frame it because originally it was framed in a very negative, smart arsey way, which was on a scale of one to Scott Morrison, how much will the Victorians get screwed over in this budget? But I won't do that. I won't ask that question. I'm going to reframe it. After years of neglect from the Liberal federal Liberal government, ignoring the good people of Victoria, which is the heart of the Australian economy, um, will we finally see Jim Chalmers turn to the, the great southern state and say, Here's all the money that you've been missing out on for the last 10, 15 years. Is that what's going to happen in this budget? How's Victoria going to fare, do you think, out of this budget? No, that's not going to happen in this budget. Um, we, can't, we can't make up for the, that shortfall in one budget. Um, and I, would, I don't, again, I don't envy Jim on this. Um, there are lots of calls from lots of economists for the deal that was done for WA to be undone. Um, obviously, politically, that's, you know, nefarious for this government because they won the election off the back of uh, unexpected seats in WA. Uh, so, and politically, Victoria is just about the stronghold for a progressive government. So if you're if you're throwing money after votes, it's not coming our way. I'm hopeful, though, that they won't be throwing just naked, throw, nakedly throwing money after votes um, and that what we need to see really is a longer-term balancing of those uh, infrastructure investments. I've, I think what Catherine King's been saying uh, over the last 24 hours or so, by the time this goes to web, over the last few days or so, around um, not cutting infrastructure spending but directing it more to the evidence-based projects, that will naturally benefit Victoria, right? A lot of what we have had money um, withheld from are projects that Infrastructure Australia and Infrastructure Victoria have given the green light to. So I think that process of stopping the pork barrelling um, and putting the money into um, infrastructure that has an evidence base will naturally benefit Victoria. But um, if Jim Chalmers was to use this budget to uh, throw a lot of money back at Victoria, I think it would not only be politically stupid, it wouldn't necessarily be economically justified. Though those Turning those things around takes time um, and it has to be done through the federal process at a, a national cabinet level. We've got an opportunity to do these things well with state governments you know, coast to coast other than other than Tassie. So, um, and, a, and a relatively sensible, I think, um, fairly moderate Tasmanian Liberal government too. So um, it takes time is my answer to that. Fair enough. But if I see any investment in some kind of crazy monorail for Cairns <laughs> or something like that, then I'm going to get you back on the show or you'll be back on the show and you'll be, you'll be, here, you'll be hearing from me, Emma. I'm sure I will. Um, Nothing is not coming. <laughs> Final, uh, final predictions or thoughts or wish lists or things that you think will actually that we should be looking for. Maybe some things out of the box that might surprise us on Tuesday night. I'm hoping to be pleasantly surprised, as Peter Khalil said, on the welfare front. Um, a lot of us have been working very hard on that for a long time, and there's an understanding there that it needs to be done. Um, I think on I think my I think what people might find the most surprising is just how how. Um, strong the budget position will be compared to what we've been led to believe over the last year or so. Um, but I hope to see some real thinking about some of those longer-term structural deficits. I don't think people should expect big changes to the tax and transfer system in this budget. Um, the, the Treasurer has been quite clear that they're not going to introduce big new taxes. Um, there needs to be a conversation with the electorate about that. So I'd say temper expectations. Yes, it's the first proper budget of a Labor government for a long, long time. Um, a lot of us have a lot of hopes for it. I think if they do make those investments to support the most vulnerable um, and then keep uh, the rest of the budget really tightly targeted on where we need to set up our um, fiscal policy for the next three to five years, then that will be a strong economic performance. 
I think the government's intention with this budget is to to, to calm the horses, to reassure the broader population that we've got the grown-ups back in charge, that we're not going to fuel inflation, that we are economically responsible. We've, we've you know, re restored some balance to the budget in just 12 months um, and some down payments on some of those real labour, labourist reforms. Um, you know, we've seen action on wage growth. We've got further industrial relations changes to come this year. Not everything that, that goes to the cost of living is done through the budget. You know, we can do... We can make changes through IR reform and other parts of the budget as well. Um, but a down payment on supporting those people that have been locked out of the economy. We have the strongest jobs market, lowest unemployment rate for a generation, but we've still got nearly twice as many people on income support who are actively looking for work. Uh, and that's because there are many people that are underemployed, many people, about 28% of job seekers have a disability that means they can only work up to 30 hours a week. Another 12% have a mental illness that has the same requirements and about another 25% have caring responsibilities. So um, a down payment on that and the beginning of a rebalancing um, of who we invest in uh, and where we where we invest our commonwealth to lift the most people up. And I think that's what we'll get. Um, it won't be exciting enough for some, um, but I don't think it'll be scary. Uh, you know, it won't scare the horses because we need we need three terms at least of a, of a good... I'd love, you know, more than that, but at least three terms of a good, strong centre-left government to restore the, you know, the damage that has been done, frankly, by vandals to our economy over the last decade or so. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. You are now officially nerded up and ready to watch uh, the budget on uh, Tuesday night and uh, know exactly what you're going to be looking for. Emma Dawson, thank you for your time today. And we look forward to doing the post-budget analysis with you next week. Yeah. Uh, and until then, have a great week and we'll talk to you, uh, talk to you soon. Great. See you then. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.